what ended up happening is he just got overly sedated where he had to be intubated. Mm. He had to get traked for these withdrawals. And there was this one episode where he was bleeding out of his trach. I don't know what he did where an ENT doctor had emergently come in and uh, cauterize a vein because there was just so much blood. So yeah, alcohol withdrawals aren't fun. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, so them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. Swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this game. Now my fan they can't eat. Hey everyone, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show with your hosts Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world with one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. If you find value in this show, I want to join us on this mission. It would mean everything to us if you share and review the show. If you want to find out more about us, our show notes, check out cupofnurses.com for all the info, latest merch releases, and for our lifestyle podcast. You can check us out on we are frontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we are going to talk about the CWAP protocol and how we manage alcohol withdrawal in the hospital. So when it comes to alcohol withdrawal and the CWAP protocol, first thing you have to do is take into consideration where do these effects come from? Why do people have certain signs and symptoms when they go through alcohol withdrawal? So people that drink alcohol, they use ethanol. And ethanol stimulates the... Uh, GABA receptors, so it acts as as the as like a depressor or a you could say a more depressing uh, neurotransmitter in the place of of GABA. And what happens is it works the same way GABA does. And when you think about GABA, we mentioned neurotransmitters a few episodes ago, um, especially when we talked about like the central nervous system. So alcohol is a central nervous depressant. And GABA also works on the central nervous system. So they they correlate. They work basically in a very similar fashion where alcohol is a depressant. And in GABA receptors, when you activate GABA, it's also a, a depressant. What GABA essentially does is it slows down and stops certain transmis- transmissions and messages that go on in your, in your brain. So it's the way your central nervous kind of winds down and, and it calms, calms down because remember, our brain is like a circuit. It's always getting inputs. It's always getting stimulated. And GABA, you could say in a sense, regulates that by silencing those messages that you don't really need right now. Very good way of explaining it. And what happens is, what happens, alcohol creates this homeostasis in the body. So over time, you become so dependent on it where you need ethanol, aka alcohol, to preserve this homeostasis. And what happens is it decreases these excite excitatory tones whatever you want to call them of the central nervous system where you basically numb yourself essentially mm-hmm. what happens so you you are in this numb state for such a long time where you don't drink alcohol and after six hours you start getting into these withdrawals and then mm-hmm. bam everything goes crazy and haywire because your central nervous system is in complete fight or flight going crazy trying to restore balance and this is when these patients come into us mm-hmm. we have to treat them and let me tell you guys what I thought was withdrawal symptoms from the textbooks. It's a completely different story. 
the sundowners do not even compare when it comes to the crazy stuff that we saw with alcohol withdrawal patients and i'm sure anybody listening could relate to that they might have some crazy stories themselves they might have got punched swung at spit at looked at talked bad to these patients are the nastiest that you can have in a Mm. hospital yeah it's very dangerous people could go into a coma and and die from that it's crazy to think about it's very interesting that so like we mentioned gaba uh a little, little bit ago and it's almost like the ethanol replaces these GABA receptors you could say and the function of GABA and your body flips to now looking for those depress- depressive effects in alcohol so they almost say flip-flop that's why it's so dangerous when you abruptly stop drinking alcohol and you get these crazy signs symptoms that, that Matt was talking about because your body does not know how to calm down because before you became an alcoholic or be- before your patient became i guess you could say an alcoholic or alcohol dependent his body was focused on using gaba to slow everything down and now with him drinking so much alcohol every day it's almost like the alcohol is replacing the gaba and that's what's causing them this depression this relaxation this this calmness yeah and you, you you bring up a good point because honestly alcohol dependency goes hand in hand with anxiety mm-hmm. and patients with anxiety have this overstimulated nervous system where they don't know how to regulate their emotions their nervous system and what do they do they use drugs to do that they could be smoking pot they could be taking Mm -hmm. other substances in this case they're using alcohol to numb and using GABA which inhibits these messages that Peter talked about where you don't have this influx of sensory Mm -hmm. input where you feel calm you feel relaxed but the the thing is this is a band-aid approach just like with anything you're not you're not solving the real root issue is like why you're having anxiety why are you having this influx of emotions where you can't regulate them you need to down them down with alcohol Mm. and i think that's what's interesting too when you have these patients talk to them a little bit they're going through hell right now they're you know they're withdrawing we're going to talk about c1 everything they're doing and you can just do the management the medical management side of things and push ativan and stuff but find out on an emotional level what's going on in their life why did it hit rock bottom? Why are they drinking a fifth of alcohol or six beers or three glasses of wine that's putting them in this mental state? Mm. And you might find some interesting information, perspective, yeah. perspective exactly of why this person is doing what they're doing. Mm. And maybe you could be the little, you know, little life coach during that time or therapist and you can help them out and give them some advice because sometimes that could make or break it where they could fight their, these withdrawals and feel better mm. because... Why are they there to begin with? They were numbing something. What is it that they're numbing in their life that they're trying to escape from? Yeah, yeah, I, I fully agree with you. Not every SWAT patient you have the ability to talk to and, and communicate because you're going to be going through through a lot. But it's a really, really interesting experience when somebody tells you why they drink, what happened in their life that caused them to drink, and how much they, they drink. Because sometimes we can't, we can't really comprehend why people choose alcohol to you could say balance out their feelings because we can't always see ourselves in, in that person's shoes it's really hard but then when you really dig 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 deep like matt said and find the root cause of this usually times it's very sad they're usually missing love in their life they're they're not satisfied with where they are in life and they just don't know how to fix it and their solution to kind of fixing it is to numbing it so they're avoiding avoiding those feelings and they're avoiding trying to find a solution because alcohol is not it's not a solution it's not gonna give you that love it's not gonna make you feel any better it's just a way for you to get away from from reality 
Yeah, and that's really tough because looking at that dynamic, if they feel lonely or they don't love themselves, they don't feel love from other people and they drink to do that, where usually we see them where their family left them and they went really bad into the spell of drinking and they, they cranked up their tolerance or their family left them or they dropped them off to the mm-hmm. ER in this case. And yeah, it's it's just bad, man. And with these patients, not to get all psychological and stuff, but the families need to create a safe space for them or love them and be patient with them. And that's really hard to do when years and years go on and they do the same stuff over and over again. And, you know, this kind of hits home because Peter and I are from a Polish household where our fathers liked to drink a lot in the past. And it's the, you know, it's the same shit all over again. It's really hard to tell them, to be honest, hey, like, this is bad for you. Don't do it. Or loved ones that are close and relatives, they Mm -hmm. just indulge in this. You can't you can't tell them anything. They know better. And sometimes you just have to love them from a distance, accept them for who they are, not try to change them and let them explore their own rock bottom and hopefully that will help them change man yeah hopefully because change comes within you could pray for somebody help somebody as much as much as you can you could spend hours 24 hours a day with them but that change has to be internal has to come come within you can't fix them they have to be able to open up and and fix themselves so going into the the alcohol withdrawal sign and symptoms a little bit of the timeline usually the milder symptoms start within six hours after their first drink which is interesting because sometimes people come into the ER and you ask him when the last <laughs> drink was or like an hour ago. You remember you told me that that patient that he was nervous to come into the yeah. hospital so he drank alcohol before he checked himself yeah. in. Yeah, and you hear that kind of stuff. So you're like, like oh. okay, well, this patient is going to first of all have to sober up. And after they sober up, they're going to slowly start getting these mild withdrawals. Them. So you maybe have like six or 12 hours of having a decently stable patient before things start acting up or they start acting up or they start feeling feeling nauseous they may feel anxious have a little bit of tremors some vomiting insomnia sweating headaches something mild that people it's almost like like a hangover in a sense but a little bit more of a you could say a sensory overload kind of thing yeah and that's what's happening the GABA is not binding to the central nervous system wherever it was inhibiting these neurotransmitters from slowing down and now you're experiencing these symptoms mm-hmm. and if you want to go more in depth with the gamma receptors and the neurotransmitters you could check up our show notes on coupleofnurses.com on episode 188 i think it'd be very boring if peter and i just read off what is gamma aminobutric acid to you guys and do all that so if you want to dig deeper into alcohol withdrawal just check out our show notes we have a ton of information there mm-hmm. yeah. and then you're going to see the harsher and the harder symptoms anywhere between 48 hours to 72 hours after their last drink. So when you're at this point, patient's probably been in a hospital maybe a day or two. So you're gonna be like, okay, this patient was calm, but now it's already like day two, day two and a half. Now you might see some of the iffier stuff, the carrier, the scarier stuff that goes on with alcohol withdrawal, especially if they drink like a gallon a day. Some people drink up to a gallon a day. So the more you drink, the harsher these withdrawal symptoms are going to be. So some of the craziest stuff you might see anywhere from 48, 48, 72 hours after the last drink, you might see seizures, hallucinations. Those could be visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, racing heart, heart, very 
big tremors they might get delirious real sweaty a lot of times when people are going through a hard withdrawal they're really really sweaty they're they're sleeping because maybe you give them some ativan they're, they're sleeping but they're sweating and they're going through they feel hot might have a fever uh their hands might be swollen they might have like these little neuropathic pains hypertensive those are like your serious serious alcohol withdrawals and of course if they have a seizure that's basically as as serious as it gets because they could they could pinch off their airway, not not be able to breathe. They could hurt themselves while they're seizing. They could vomit, aspirate. So you want to really pay attention to that. And a lot of our nursing management and care is to prevent those seizures. We're going to talk a little bit later about the medications. And one of the main focus on these medications is to decrease the stimulation and activity in your brain to prevent this high heart rate, these tremors, this nausea, this vomiting, and of course, prevent that seizure. Because once that seizure comes, it's usually a... Um, clonic tonic seizure and it's one of the worst seizures that, that you're going to see and experience because they're literally you know sh- like almost shaking the tonic clonic seizure if you guys ever seen tonic clonic seizure that's like the worst and most visual seizure you could have and it's very scary so you want to prevent them from hitting that point and they could go into coma they could die a lot of things could all go south after they hit that seizure yeah one time i had a patient that was in e2h withdrawals but dude just wanted more head of in and we knew that he was just fine so he faked his own seizure and i had yeah. to call rapid response and I still pushed that milligram, and it was just a weird scene where the supervisor is like, "Okay, you're not having a real seizure, you're faking it." Because I forget what we used to assess that, but we knew that he wasn't really seizing mm-hmm. based on him. But yeah, anyways, yeah. these alcohol patients are characters. So we're gonna go into CWA protocol and actually what it is. So CWA protocol, you might have heard it in nursing school. You have to chart on it every four hours, or depending on when you give your a pushes of Ativan for these withdrawal patients. So it's called the Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment Alcohol Scale Revised and is an intru- instrument by medical professionals such as nurses to assess and diagnose the severity of their alcohol withdrawal. So it starts from a scale of zero. I think it goes up all the way to like 67 or something, really high score. But anything above 20, you're considered to have serious withdrawals. And we're going to give you Ativan based on that scale. So it's very helpful. It's very simple. You don't have to call doctors. It's just using your own critical thinking skills to diagnose how much Ativan the patient is going to need. And depending on how bad of a drinker the patient is, that's when you'll find out how much Ativan you're going to give, right? And it sounds scary at first because sometimes you're pushing like four milligrams, six milligrams. You're like, whoa, Mm -hmm. I give a milligram or two to an old lady or a patient and they're like snowed and knocked out and comfortable. One thing you have to realize with alcohol dependency is there's a tolerance that builds up, right? How come that person needs to drink a gallon, not a drink or two like some normal people to feel the same effects of alcohol? Well, they overstimulated their central nervous system. They need more of that gamma or GABA, and it requires a lot more alcohol. So therefore, the scale is going to depend on the severity of how much Ativan you're giving, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So don't feel scared to push to four and six if the person is in real withdrawals. You're not gonna, you're not gonna kill them in this case. At least I hope not. You know what I'm saying? Use your, yeah. use your nursing <laughs> judgment. Don't quote me on this one. Or I'm saying yeah. six milligrams won't do anything, and then something happens. So. You know, maybe you're going to give the patient some um, oxygen or something or give them on a kypnography and title CO2 if uh, it gets more severe. So I think that depends on hospital protocol, too, because in this place, I noticed no one really does that for uh, ETOH uh, withdrawals. But I know when they get a PCA, uh, you know, like a morphine push pump for those that know what PCA means, sometimes those patients go on the end title CO2. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I want to recommend given 
if you're gonna push Ativan and stuff, do it IV. I feel like sometimes if you give it to a PO, I know they could swallow, and of course that's like you could say the best route of administering medication. It's PO. We always we always talk about that in nursing school. If you could give PO, give PO. But sometimes the PO takes a little bit longer to start working, and what sometimes happens is you're given Ativan every like 15 half an hour, so you give them to say four milligrams PO. And then you got to give them again a formal SPO 15 minutes later. But remember, PO takes a little bit longer to, 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 to kick in. So sometimes you might overload them and you might give them four. Now, 15 minutes again, you might give them another four. So you give them eight and then you give them another, another IV because it's not working. And you give them another four IV. So it's four, eight, 12 milligrams. And then an hour later, your patient is basically super snow or going apneic because you kind of overloaded them. So I always say give them, give the Ativan IV because it works the quickest and it's better, better to gauge Sometimes it's a little bit short, last, short lasting given IV. But remember, when they're scoring really high on a CO protocol, you could give them medication every 15 minutes. You give it fairly early. You don't have to wait the hour or two hours because this is a protocol. So it gives you parameters on when to, when to push one and how long you should wait. So always try to go the IV route. It works, it works quicker. It doesn't last as long. But it's better than overloading a patient and have them go into respiratory depression an hour or two hours later because you kind of overloaded them. Yeah, very good point. Plus, every patient has different absorption rates mm. and th the way their metabolic body breaks things down. So giving IV is completely straight into the bloodstream and you can gauge that patient how they're doing in real time. Yeah, and also put in two IVs just in case. Just in case one, blow, one blows, you don't want to have a CWAP patient with just one IV because if they're scoring high on a severe scale and they're not compliant or giving you a hard time, then a one IV com comes out you're not gonna give them PO then when they're going when they're going through hallucinations, auditory, visual. It's gonna be hard to calm them down. So make sure you get two IVs because if one blows, at least you have that second one because you're going to definitely have to give them IV Ativan if they're going through severe severe withdrawals. So we're just gonna go through go down through the actual CWA protocol scale, and this will kind of give you a refresher of the symptoms your patient might have. So it's very simple. I think it takes like two minutes perfect process and you actually just click through it on most computers and it's nice because there's a chart in epic mostly i don't know if meditech does it i know cerner and epic does have it where you see the scale on what's going out with the patient and how to score them so first one is nausea and vomiting it is a withdrawal symptom they're going to have scale them on how they're feeling from zero to seven the other one is agitation usually their nervous system is all rattled up and aroused so they're going to be agitated they might be restless they might be kind of thrashed around the bed trying to get out of bed so you're going to gauge that um, agitation based on assessment like that the third one is going to be visual disturbances and this is going to be your hallucinations you're going to ask them if they see anything sometimes based on how crazy the withdrawals are you're going to be in the room and they're going to be already talking crazy mm -hmm. and you know if you know, the walls moving or they're telling somebody to get out of the room or talking to, to kids or some crazy stuff, you know, they're seeing some stuff. So you can rate them on hallucinations uh, based on that. How much is there? There's 10. So I'll do five. Mm -hmm. uh, the fourth one is going to be tremors. Most you can see that in their fingertips. So they could just hold their hands out and see how they're shaking and go, go from there and, and base that scale there. Uh, tactile disturbances. How is their sensations? A lot of them might feel like pins or needles, maybe some itching. They're itching all around. They feel like some burning sensations. So base that off that. Or they might feel like someone's trying to kill them yes. or, or like stabbing them in their arms. They, it might get, it's almost like you can also have these tactile disturbances where it's a hallucination 
where people f- feel like there's a knife going through their arms or someone's cutting them. It could be it'd be really messed up like that. Uh, number six, headache, fullness in the head. That's uh, self-explanatory. See how bad the headache is. Rate it. Have, ask them to rate it zero to seven. And if they say seven, they're probably having an extreme severe headache. Proximal sweats. Usually, they you can see that best on like their face, their, their forehead, or you touch their gown and it's like completely wet. You're like, hey, did you pee your bed? Like, no, I'm just sweating out and I'm warm. So make sure you you change the gown. You're just uncomfortable being in a sweaty gown. Imagine being in wet clothes for 12 hours. It sucks. So make sure you guys do that. Auditory disturbances, very similar to hallucinations, but in a sense of they're hearing stuff. They could be like, hey, they might they might be like, hey, did you hear that? Yeah, my mom just told me this, and they they repeat what their mom said, but their mom's not not really there. So they're they're hearing stuff. And sometimes this could be also in their sleep. For example, when my patient was when my patient when they were awake, they were hallucinating, but when they fall asleep, they were just hallucinating kind of in their dreams. They were hearing stuff, they're having a conversation. So I rated them higher up because they were having some audio disturbances because they were hearing someone talking to them and they were answering those questions. Uh, number nine is going to be orientation and a clouding of the sensorium. So make sure you're oriented. Ask them where are they, what day it is, do they know their name, first name, and they're, if they're off by a lot or they're disoriented, rate them high on the scale. And number 10 is the anxiety. So the highest rating is a seven on this one as well. And that's like full blown panic attack. Breathing, freaking out for, for no reason. It's like they're schizo. Yeah, literally like they're, they're schizo. They're just severe, severe anxiety. So make sure you also score that one as well. Uh, just real quick, back to, back to number nine, the orientation and clowning of sensorium. That's actually zero out of four, not zero out of seven. That's only, All the other ones are zero out of seven, but the number nine orientation is going to be zero, zero out of four. And like Matt said in the beginning, uh, add those numbers together. It goes up to like the max is like 67 or something like that. And if you're less than 10, it's very mild. 10 to 15 is mild. 16 to 20 is moderate withdrawal. And of course, anything above 20 is a severe withdrawal. Normally with these assessments, you're going to ask the patient these signs and symptoms. But in the real life scenario, your patient might be withdrawing. There might be their own little world, aka like a K-hole or something. So you're going to be using your best clinical judgment to rate them based on their severity. You're going to get the score on the computer, and based on that, you're going to know the drug dosages. So if you are scaling 5 to 9, you might have Ativan given 1 milligram every 4 hours. If you're 10 to 14, you might be giving Lorazepam, a.k.a. Ativan, 2 milligrams Q2. If it's 15 to 19, which is the moderate symptoms, you're going to be giving it 3 milligrams Q1. And if it's 20 to 24 and above, you might be going anywhere from 4 milligrams every 13 minutes up to six milligrams every 10 minutes to drop that score down and have them be comfortable. Mm-hmm. One, it's for patient safety. And then two, we're trying to prevent these seizures mm-hmm. that these patients could have because they're so aroused by the central nervous system. Yeah, you could also possibly even put them on a, a Ativan drip. It's not very common, but some when it's requiring, for example, going through severe withdrawals and you're giving them, let's just say six milligrams every half an hour, that's a lot might be better off just putting them on a drip where they're constantly getting one milligram continuously or two milligrams continuously through their, their bloodstream. Yeah. I've only given Ativan drip one time and when day shift came on, the came on, he freaked out because he never seen Ativan drip and he automatically discontinued it. So I had him on Ativan drip for like four hours overnight and he was <laughs> super calm. And then they had a hard time with him during the, during the day. So they put him back on. But as wow. soon as like the doctor came and doing the rounds, he like freaked out, he was like, turn it off. Put it, put it back on protocol, but it, was, it worked. Yeah, same thing here. I think I had one or two patients that were on an Ativan drip, and I remember he was a young guy in his 30s, 
what ended up happening is he just got overly sedated where he had to be intubated. Mm. He had to get traked for these withdrawals. And there was this one episode where he was bleeding out of his trach. I don't know what he did where an ENT doctor had emergently come in and uh, cauterize a vein because it was just so much blood. So, yeah, alcohol withdrawals aren't fun. Not fun at all. And, of course, seizure precautions is something you should be worrying about. So what do you do for seizure precautions? One, of course, is always pad those side rails. Use those briefs or tape. Wrap it around. Make sure the padding's good. Reduce environmental stimuli. Maybe turn off the lights. Close the door if you can. Do things that don't stimulate the person so much. Put the patient in low bed position because he's a fall risk. And just have some oxygen set up bedside and a suction canister available just in case if he were to seize, you're going to turn him to the side, suction his mouth if he gets frothy and all that, mm -hmm. extreme, extreme cases. And then when it comes to drugs of choices, you mentioned lorazepam. That's Ativan. It's our first go-to. Medical management is going to be focused on benzodiazepines. So your most common ones are going to be the Ativan, Valium, and we also give Librium as well to help with all those withdrawals. And the way benzodiazepines work is they're a sedative. They, they work on your GABA, so they increase the effects of GABA. So it helps your body almost switch from the ethanol depression it's used to to the depression using, using GABA. So you're trying to return your body back into, into homeostasis, how it's supposed to function, and not using alcohol to depress its its stimulatory system and its CNS, it's flipping back to, to GABA. So benzodiazepines, you're gonna get sedation, you're gonna get relaxation, they might feel sleepy, reduces your anxiety, and also relaxes your, your muscles. So it's a really big calming effect. It When it works, it works very well. You're gonna see your patient go from hallucinations, being fidgety, moving around to just calm, relaxed, and they're mostly going to fall asleep. That's why Matt mentioned the, the capnography because some of them might have a little bit of apnea going on. A lot of our patients are, or they have OSA, obstructive sleep apnea, so this is going to trigger more of it. And even for our patients that don't have apnea, this still might lead to a uh, decreased respiratory rate and um, I don't want to say cessation of breathing because that's going to be- It depresses in. your drive yeah, to breathe. Yeah, like so you might see that. Yeah, but usually they, they pass out right away and they're just sleeping the rest of the shift. You'd rather have them be sleeping versus them being awake because you don't want them to go into the seizures. And if they're sleeping, it means they're not getting a lot of stimulation and they're most likely not going to have those seizures. Yeah. And then if you have patients that are in the ice or even before the ICU, if you have patients on the floor that are having extreme ETOH withdrawals, or they need closer monitoring, or they might need a Presidex drip, call Rapid, send them over our way to the ICU. We will take care of them. One drug we like to use is called Presidex, dexmethadomidine, if I'm pronouncing <laughs> that right. So that's an adjunct that we give on Ativan. And I think there was like a study that I read before that they were able to decrease the use of benzos by like 60 plus percent if you're using uh, Presidex. So it's another sedative that we use and it helps tremendously with sedatives it honestly just puts them to sleep most patients it puts them to sleep they might be kind of really loopy they don't know where they're at but it almost puts them in a conscious coma we like to call it where they could fight off those crazy ETOH withdrawals from the 48 to 72 mark and then we'll titrate the drip off they feel dandy and then they kind of get mm. a downgrade to a different floor when it comes to Presidex 
one thing you have to be careful if they have like a second degree AV block because you, you might develop a, a abnormal heart rate. Sometimes it does slow their heart rate down. So they got, you know, juiced up on benzos and now you're giving Presidex. They might be very Brady depending on higher titrate in the drip. I think you start at like 0.2 mics per kg per minute. Some uh, physicians like to do a loading dose for Presidex, mm -hmm. just like you're doing um, Dilantin or other things or Amio. And if not, then you just start the drip and you just titrate by 0.2. Some places have different maxes. I know in the, in Chicago, we were doing 1.5 mics. And mm. I know here now in this hospital, they finally titrated up from 1.4 to 1.5. So the nurses here are happy because they could use um, that uh, more of a higher dosage mm. to snow the patient. And the last thing is just a lower blood pressure. So of course you're depressing the patient they might be a little bit brady they might be a little bit hypotensive depending on what's happening so in the ic we titrate drugs uh based on that and then this is not a drug but you might put them on restraints mm -hmm. if they're a safety risk you, we put them in a two-point restraints sometimes we use the vest sometimes we use the wrists and i think the craziest patient i ever had which is actually in this hospital in 2019 this guy was going in such crazy withdrawals where they put him in leather restraints. Security mm. guard was there. We tried to, I think we ended up intubating the guy because they couldn't control him. Yeah. So th those are the extremes where you put four point restraints. But hopefully we use all these other interventions that we don't have to restrain the person like they're in a freaking, like a, I don't know, like a torture show or yeah, something. Yeah. That one you show that that uh, everybody's watching on Netflix. I don't even know what it's called. It's a torture show? It's not a torture show, but it's like the the criminal guy. Dexter? Nah, man. It's like all the all the women are about it. I just don't know wow. what it's called. But what oh, happened? One with that one a serial killer, right? Yeah, he Jeffrey Dahmer thing. That guy, that guy. Yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, eBay banned uh, buying that costume off their uh, website. Why? It's because so because they have a policy. Anybody that like committed a crime or any violent crimes, mm -hmm. you can't purchase anything to do with them within the hundred years. Respect, damn. Which makes sense, it right? Because then that. you know people could get bad thoughts there. So yeah, think about it. Like this psychopath. It's crazy because everyone knows about Jeffrey Dahmer, but they don't know something more important in life. Like, why are we, you could say, putting this serial killer on a pedestal? What's Pangea? Right? Yeah, what is Pangea? You guys know? From a little dicky video. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck with the war? Yeah. yeah but thank you guys for tuning in. Hope you all learned something worth our episode on CL protocol and how we manage alcohol withdrawal in, in the patient. If you guys want to learn more or read a little bit more in, in depth of what we talked about, GABA, the whole protocol, we have all the information on our show notes. A lot more in depth, in depth than what we discussed right now. A lot of good information. But if you have any questions about anything, let us know or reach out to your educator. Some of these protocols are a little bit different, but I feel like we got the, the main, main gist of it and you could probably pass your exam with this information. Exactly. And if you like the show, please, guys, share with your loved ones, subscribe, give it a like. It means everything to us. It benefits us so much and we're continuously growing. And if you have some recs on what we should record next, hit us up in the DM and see you on the next one. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.